and try to live longer yeah. to find immortality, literally. That's every, everything we do is going in that direction, trying to live longer. Um, there are always these outliers who you know, are weird, the, all the daredevils. So let's assume for a moment that humanity doesn't get there. And 200 years from now or 1,000 years from now, people are still dying. Will they at some point... <clears throat> Oh, yes. If, we, if our lifespans get shorter, I think we'll put more stock on the now. Yeah. So if uh, your AI robots take over and we have a Terminator situation, <laughs> you know, and there's no food and water easily gotten, uh, yeah. yeah, I think we go back to primitive times when it's, it's a bit better. Well, in terms of enjoy the now, but then we have a horrible, objectively speaking, a horrible life. Right. Pardon? A hedonistic life. Well, uh, there wouldn't be much pleasure if it's like, um, if like in Matrix, the machines block out the sun and I don't know what the fuck. I don't know. Your happiness level adjusts, right? Hmm. Yeah. So like in the Matrix with all the refugees huddled in some tunnel somewhere and they still make love and yeah, you'd still be find happiness. happiness. Yeah, you, that's right. You, you'll find your baseline. Um, yeah, and then, but we would still strive to, I mean, that, may, that movie is a good example. We still strive to find a hero in, in us. We still try to find a hero in us and then to ab absolve us of our meaninglessness by putting our meaning in something else, either the, the country, the state, or, or Neo, the savior. Yeah. This, yeah. But if, if, if people get it that... Neo, in 200 years, no one's going to remember Neo, or in 1,000 years, mm. or in 10,000 years. If that clicks, <laughs> what happens to the transference then? Yeah, you sure. If, if you instinctively, viscerally understand that the sun is going to go supernova at some point? Mm. At some point. Does transference some point in the near future, like in your lifetime? No. Even oh. in 10,000 years. So you, you cannot transfer into something that will survive the supernova. I think something outside of your own lifetime, humans are not that smart. So if you think like dogs don't think past tomorrow, today, yeah, right? Like um, they might, you might be able to make it not do stuff for like a few hours because it knows dinner is coming. But if I, but if I transfer, but, if I have a transference to the country of China, like you said before, mm -hmm. that's beyond my lifetime. Yeah. Right. Someone might uh, bequeath their entire wealth to their government, knowing full well, I'm dead, but in some way I'm contributing. Yeah, it will live on. That's immortality. Yeah. But, if but you're saying, supernova, well, you're saying, no longer gonna exist you're saying you have to think that um, that thing is not eternal, that you actually have a timeline in your mind that is distinguishes between 200 years and 2000 years. Yeah. Or, or <clears> you come, <throat> yes, or you come to the realization that no matter what you do your act of transference on, it's, it's not working. Because everything is perishable. That yeah, that's what we're trying to do. Oh, I'm trying to lead us to that conclusion, and then and then suggest solutions. But <clears throat> no way, man. The average person is so brainless. They don't get it. They're like, yeah, they're sort of like closer to dogs because they just want food. They just want sex. They just want to feel good about themselves. They just want more money. Man, they're the majority of the world. That's why I feel like New York is sort of like the. They're planning out all of the other stuff that the rest of the world blindly follows, right? Like you're masterminding here 
all of this consumer stuff that you don't actually consume that much of, but you're selling it to everyone else. And they're blindly following, like sheep. So this is like headquarters where everyone's masterminding shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I feel like, in a way, in, like intelligent people are a small minority in the world. Self-conscious, self-aware. Certainly in this country. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah, that's a good example. If you can mobilize the sheep, and then you, you know, get, but they're sheep, man. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so, I guess we're, we're recording, right? So, yeah, I don't know what, I think it's still broken. Maybe we'll close this a bit. Um, maybe just close the door, I guess. Yeah, couldn't get it to stop. Yeah, I think there's something wrong with that. <laughs> um, the exis well, what time is it here? Okay, we got five minutes. Don't worry, the coffee's coming. We'll get the, the but existentialism was was that that was a uh, so the existentialist movement was early 1900s, and then World War One happened, World War Two happened, and then we had Enlightenment rationalism taking hold of most of the academics, the intellectuals, and they they started to see things as our, us as uh, like working like computers and robots, right? So the unconscious disappeared. And then existentialism fell out of favor, partly in the same way hypnosis did. But existentialism gripped most of the smart people in this world, in the Western world. Um, and, and arguably in Japan as well, there's Japanese existentialism, there's all kinds of, in, in uh, China, especially May 4th movement um, in the early 1900s, there was existentialism, which was basically the existential despair, existential anxiety, the angst of the, the dilemma of existence. And um, that was like, what's the point? Especially when all these wars went on. Uh, so Freud uh, was asked his doctor to, to pump morphine in him to kill him uh, humanely because he just like, well, he was old, but World War II was starting. Like, so in 1940, I think it was, when he, moved, he escaped the Nazis to London and then has to be killed. Uh, so part of it is like, okay, this might be another 10 years of war. Don't really want to live through this. I live a pretty good life. Can we just end it now? Because you know, the rest, for me to get through this war, it's like a lot of pain, you know. And uh, no, that is irrational. I, I once asked uh, my philosophy, one of my philosophy professors, the C.S. Lewis argument, um, which was that uh, the, the argument against, one argument against Christianity is the existence of pain and evil in the world. Why would a loving God have created a world in which there was all of this suffering, problem of suffering? Because if they were just evil, then just let them disappear. Okay, they're sort of like, do you choose me or not? Okay, don't choose me, disappear. All right, why put them through suffering? Why burn them alive? Why skin them alive? Why over and over and over do they have to suffer? That just seems needless. <laughs> okay, so... The argument, I was defending the Christian side back then. So the argument is that if you made him disappear, then that, then that, would, make, that would be a better life for whom? Right? So the argument is uh, it's better to not live than to live. Right? That, that would be only, so if, if God humanely makes him disappear, that would, the, the assumption is that it's better to not, that it can be better to not live than to live. Right? But then the C.S. Lewis argument is, for better for whom? 
if the thing isn't around anymore, it's not better for that because it's not there. Who is it better to, to not exist? There is no subject for it to be better for. So that's the argument. It's better to exist at all than not to exist. It's better to exist than not to exist at all, even if it's suffering. Well, the professor said to me, I can imagine many instances in which it would be better not to exist than to exist. And I was just locked into that logical argument that the Christian was using, C.S. Lewis was using, that it would be better to exist and suffer than to not exist at all. Because at least you exist. But now I see that if your entire life was just being skinned alive and being brought back to life and skinned alive and being brought back to, you know, for 20 years, what was the point? <laughs> Put him out of his misery. And so, so sometimes you see a soldier about to be burned at the stake. I've seen a bunch of movies like this. And the, the fleeing soldiers turn back and they shoot him mercifully, right, just to end the suffering. It's sort of like that idea. Why didn't God just stop it from happening and just snuff them out? It would have been better. Um, and now I have to concede that that is a good point. <laughs> Right, so the existential argument is like, what is the point? Um, there's not a clear. So I'm going to suggest some solutions. Uh, no human being has like a. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Uh, I don't understand everything you said, but it seems to me the underlying assumption in this psychological argument is that humans are self-centered. That's why meaning is derived from that person. Right? What if you're living for other people? Transference. We all do live for other people because we can't live for ourselves because we suck. <laughs> so you do live for other people. I'll show you specifically the specific other people that you will live for. Those are the solutions um, that we see in human history. We see now. Um, but that's the normal thing. You live for your, your son. You live for your daughter. You live for your mom. You live for the love of your life. You live for... <clears throat> Country, you live for glory, you live for legacy, you, live, you never live for yourself. In some, at some point it is for yourself because it's your immortality vehicle. You live, for immortal, live forever through that person. Um, most failed relationships are a result of the fact that that person isn't immortal that you've denoted immortality to. They can't handle that. And we'll get to that, right? So, uh, but the state and abstract concepts like God... Well, they can handle all you want because they're just they don't even exist, right? So we imagine that there's a God. Well, it works because we can imagine that there's a God and the, we then throw all of that uh, meaninglessness onto God. And then we posit things like heaven. And then all of our pain makes sense because there's a heaven. Then we can live on forever because we, in fact, do live on forever in heaven. Once you introduce heaven, you change the entire debate, right? If it is true that there is a God who has a heaven, then we actually are eternal. And then none of you should be here. That's why I, I, I look into the eyes of a Christian who says he's a Christian, and I think he's a fucking idiot and a, and a hypocrite, not because he's a Christian, but because he's here. Because he if... Suicide yet? No, well, no, because if, if you really... Yeah, except that the stupid Bible says, don't do that, that's cheating. Oh. So it punishes you, right? <laughs> the Catholics say, you can't take your life in your own hands. You're playing God. So that's like, that's a sure sign to hell. I mean, a surefire way to hell. But like... You have a closed system as a Christian. You have a consistent system that has its own rules. It has its own uh, rule book. And then you try to play the evolution game, it's over. And then you try to mix them, you lose. So if you believe in Christianity, then everything you're doing in this life should track to that reality. You, everything you should be doing should be for the glory of God. You should be a missionary. You should basically sacrifice your life in the, you know, saving natives and wherever the fuck natives are these days. 
and getting the fucking diseases and whatever and getting speared by them because there is eternal glory there. And if eternity is true, which is bizarre, it's a philosophical concept, but if there is, if there is bounded on one side eternity, okay, then everything you should be doing right now is for eternity. It makes no sense to make more money. But then you get these Christians who are not real Christians. They try to make money now and then they, you know, they think somehow they're stupid. They're hypocrites. They're dumb. They're uncritical Christians. Most of Singaporean Christians are stupid. They have, like, they've never read the Bible. No respect for them. I tell them I'm a better Christian than you, and they think that I'm joking. I'm not. I actually understand your religion better than you. You're a fake Christian. And if you believe what you believe, if you're supposed, if you believe what you're supposed to believe, then when you end up on the pearly gates facing, you know, afterlife on judgment day, and there are many theories about that that these guys have no idea about, but there are all kinds of ways. How does judgment day happen? On judgment day, whatever way you interpret it, you will be judged. And if you live for now, you're, you're going to at best be in purgatory if you're Catholic or hell if you're Protestant. And so, you know, I don't play that game because <laughs> I don't buy the premises, right? But that's a way out. And a part of me, yes, part of me wants to get plugged back into that because it's so comforting. Like, there's meaning. God gives it meaning. And I should go, everything I, should, I do should be for that eternal glory. It's easy. The problem is you can't do it by choice. You, yeah, you can't unplug, you, you can't suddenly, plug back in. Yeah, you <laughs> choose to believe. You can forget stuff, I guess. <laughs> well, since we're on the roll, oh, I'm glad, I'm glad the discussion's rolling, because I was afraid um, you wouldn't relate, because maybe you just want to have a nice ice cream cone or something. Um, awesome, so this is, this is hitting home. Uh, so we were at the transverse sphere of death. Coffee will come at some point, um, and then we'll take a slight break to, to pour everything. But let's move on. Okay, so this is where we ended off. Group psychology um, and uh, some Trump references. Okay. So the paradox of human motives. And um, this is, I want to uh, reference UPW and Tony here. But there's a paradox, and it's sort of like a dilemma two horns. The one horn is that we all as human beings have a powerful desire to identify with nature, with the universe, with cosmic process, to merge with nature and to be one. That's a very powerful throughout human history, an important, an essential motivation to being human, to belong to a community that at the basic level, but then to be one with, some, one with something greater than ourselves. The second part of the horn is, the second horn is that we want to be unique. We want to stand out. We want to be special. Okay, so you see the tension, right? So I want to be one with everything, but I want to be different from everything. And so human life is this problem. Um, and, and you can actually parse all of human, human history using that lens, the lens of these two lenses, actually, of, of these, this paradox of the two horns, this tension. Okay, so um, now this could be a resolution to this paradox. So... Um, the human being gives into the natural feeling of cosmic dependence, the desire to be something bigger, which puts him at peace in oneness and gives him a sense of self-expansion in a larger beyond, and thus heightening his being, truly giving feeling of transcendent value. What this means is these collapse into each other. So the, over the hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years of our evolution, we discover that we can have both. How? By giving ourselves fully into the oneness, and now we're happy, and our oneness makes us feel like, yes, I am one, I am this gigantic thing. 
made of many people. And of course, the leader gets the biggest high, but you as part of that gets get a big high. Okay, so I'm gonna bring it home. Most of you, except one, has been to Tony Robbins. So how awesome does it feel when in the dark, you're like making your move and you're shouting, let me hear you, and you're like, yeah, right? You're doing your thing, yeah. And it's such a high, even though it's, you go there partly, and for those who don't know, I'm talking about this Unleash the Power Within, now 14,000 people. I, when I first started going, it was like 4,000 people. And you're screaming with thousands of people, tens of thousands now, and it's such a high because you're part of the horde but you are unique because you got your own move, but also you're unique because you are you. You're experiencing this through the, the limitations of your body and your senses, and you're experiencing your oneness, but it gives you a sense of self-expansion as part of a larger community of other shouters making their moves, experiencing the same thing, going, undergoing the same process, and you become even more powerful than if you did it alone in your bedroom. You could have done the same thing alone in your bedroom, which I kind of lead guys through in Invincible. But if you can expand, it's like, it's like Mayweather saying, form Voltron, <laughs> right? <laughs> so you form Voltron now with 14,000 other UPW guys. And like, yeah, you make a move. And now you're, you feel like in a way you control them. They are you and you are them. You are one being. And you might have gotten this feeling if you were in that fishbowl effect at the stadium and you look around and everybody is doing the same thing. This is part of the wave uh, that's been analyzed by psychologists a lot. Um, why would people just stand up randomly when this happens and why do they like it? It is that feeling of oneness with the community that gives them the power of the self. The self expands with the community and you become one with the community but you also now get that self. So they are you and you, you are pretty fucking powerful. So that's why you get this tribal horde thing. You get um, the gangster, uh, the gangsterism, the what do you call it, the, the mo mass mobilization, um, the riot psychology of when you enter that thing, that that group that has a mind of its own. You actually feel like this is really powerful because it sort of feels like you are the group, and you could do so much now. You can take that guy down. You can rip these doors open. You can set that thing on fire. Whereas if you're by yourself, you couldn't do those things. You know, you throw one rock and uh, you run, right? But now you throw one rock, we all throw rocks, yeah! Puh! Take us on, and as a group now, 15,000 of you, storming the fucking tower. We're gonna take down the Bastille. Boom, all of us. And that, all of them are you. So they come in together. That's it, collapses. This explains that step in evolution from the nomadic wanderer uh, in, the de in the savannah uh, randomly mating, you know, that's that theory anyway, or generally small groups of 15 people, half of them are your immediate family members, and having to find out-group members, maybe cousins or something, <laughs> to produce babies, to actually having human society, like full societies, 150 people tribes, turning into hundreds of thousands of people, you know, 10,000 years later or whatever. <clears throat> okay. Wow. That's one way to transcend it. So then we have beyond UPW, okay, beyond communal things, beyond riots. Now we talk about entire, entire societies. The human inner yearning to be good for the way things ought to be, that is there for most people. You know, so psychopaths are exempt from this, but 99% of people have this exceeding warm and melting attraction toward the rightness of beauty. Actually, I should, I should downplay 90% of people have this. I think there are a lot of... There are a lot more evil people than we, we suspect, but 
the rightness of beauty, goodness, and perfection. And we call this, uh, in, in general parlance, a conscience. At the basic level, this is a conscience. You feel bad, you want it to be good. Sometimes you can't follow your conscience, but you still feel it. You want it to be good. Uh, we need to infuse our lives with values, values so we can pronounce our lives as good. We want to be able to, at the end of our lives on our deathbed, to look back and pronounce it as good, just as in Genesis. The transference object is therefore natural fetishization for man's highest yearnings and strivings. Now, fetishization is a term of art for Becker and for Freud and, and, and that school, so let's unpack that. We live in utter darkness about who we are and why we are here. We come out of the womb, we don't have any of that information. Why am I, why was I created? The Frankenstein question. Why am I here at all? Yet we know there must be some meaning, or we yearn for it, and we want it to be a good meaning. It can't be a meaningless meaning, like there was a, I was a clone, and the guy just pressed the wrong button, and poom, I came out, shit. Right, that sucks. That make our lives sort of depressing. And so Otto Rank, a famous student of Freud, all of the twistings of the self with its artificial striving for perfection and the unavoidable relapses into badness are the result of these attempts to humanize the spiritual need for goodness. So we go back here. A, we look for a transference object because we naturally yearn and strive for something greater, something higher, something good, something perfect. And you see this through maybe your life, my life, people's lives who, who strive, achieve, um, and even those who do criminal things, they're also trying to leave a legacy of some kind. The artif artificial striving for perfection, and of course you, you make mistakes, you fall down flat, and sometimes you fuck up, and you do things you feel guilty about. Right? So these are the unavoidable relapses into badness. What we're trying to do here is that all these twistings of the self is to find this, get to fulfill the need for our lives to be good. We need our lives to matter, to be good, not to matter in an evil way, because we matter, like, it could be, you know, a psychopath could say, I mattered because I raped and killed 10 women or something like that. And so as Tony Robbins would say, that's also a way to fulfill significance. But for most of us, it's about goodness. Now, we can also use this to explain evil, and that's, that's actually a lot easier. How do we explain the goodness? So the Christian solution, we've talked about that briefly. The Christian solution is man's cosmic heroism is assured even if he was nothing. And in fact, the, Christ, the brilliance of the Christian solution is to say, you're more assured of immortality if you are nothing. Wow, how appealing is that? You can be poor, worthless, destitute, a prostitute, evil, dirty, sinful. And I wish more of a more of place like Singapore, more, the more perfectionist the society, the more it would benefit from, from Christianity uh, as far as like getting along in day-to-day -day life. So instead of beating themselves up for not being good, they, 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 they realize no matter how bad I am, God will take me. In fact, the worse I am, you know, the blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? So he flips Christianity. He, Christianity flips that's the script. So Christianity flips the system. And now everybody in their carnality, in their creatureliness, are even more accepted because of their creatureliness. And how hard it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God like a, what is it, the camel through the eye of a needle. Now you're fucking up the, the guy who's been striving, right? So now everybody gets in. So the rich guy, it's easy for him to just give away his money. Now he's back to being poor, gets into heaven. It's great. So everybody has it. You're assured. All you got to do is say yes. Say yes. <laughs> okay. By taking a step back from the world into the dimension of heaven, saying life doesn't end here. There's this eternity beyond infinite that way. And that makes the terrifying creature consciousness 
than the very condition of his cosmic heroism. In other words, he will finally matter in the cosmic scheme of things because he is imperfect and dirty and has shit coming out of his ass. I wonder, they shit in heaven? Where is, who does the sanitation in heaven? You don't shit in heaven. No one's asked that. I've never, I just thought of that. Is there anality in heaven? Christians, if you ask them, they might say something cheeky like, your shit will smell great. I don't know. Fucking. It probably is like perfect. Like the toilets never break in heaven. I don't know. But there is a question like, do you shit in heaven? Or, you know, what would, what would be the purpose of that since you never die? Maybe to remind yourself of what you used to be. I don't know. There's some clever things, but there's nothing in the Bible that says anything about shitting in heaven. <laughs> it's a great song. Shitting in heaven. <laughs> All right, there's no shit in heaven. There are no tears in heaven, apparently. No so shit in heaven. And then there's a romantic solution, and this is what I keep getting confronted with. This is what I, and all boys went through, actually. I don't think there's any boy who didn't go through, try the romantic solution. Some of them just were abused out of it when they were 14 or something. Like, uh, what's Slim? Was it? Uh, Eminem? Oh, Eminem, yeah, that would be a good example. Um, Slimberg, Iceberg Slim is the one I was thinking of, the pimp. Uh, but anyway. So uh, the neurotic, the, the boy, fixes his urge to cosmic heroism onto another person in the form of a love object. I keep using that term love object, uh, but for dudes who are, like for dudes it means the, the girl he falls in love with. Okay, so if the girl would, for the girl would be the guy, for the gay guy would be the gay guy. Okay. Love object. Modern man fulfills the urge to self-expansion in the love, by using the love object. And so in the, the Christian solution, it was fulfilled by God in the average modern person is fulfilled by the thing he falls in love with. And that's why the first breakup is always the most painful, most of the time, right? Because that's the first time. If you really, if you truly fell in love and you put, so women are, you know, they, they females tend to do this over and over. Uh, and, and to the point where the theory is masculine, feminine, and play, books like David Data's make it seem like the feminine energy is to be dependent, is to, the, me the purpose of a woman's life is the man. Right? And I think that's scary, but a lot of red pill and, well, a lot, definitely red pill, but a lot of POAs um, and well-meaning POAs like Zan, he's famous for that one, uh, believe that. Right? So, uh, but whereas the, it's the purpose, of, the man's purpose cannot be the woman, the woman's purpose should, is, is often the man. And that is a normal, natural way of things. Um, I think that's, that's actually, just as bad if the woman makes the man the purpose of her life as well. Um, it's just, well, it could work out because the man maybe is a breadwinner and so that can be sustained, right? So that can be an actual sustained thing, but not because it's good for her. Um, she's still very dependent on the dude. Luckily, modern laws make it so that she can rape the guy of all his money if he chooses to leave. So it's on her side. And practically speaking, it's a, it's a fine move to make. Um, but psychologically speaking, it's not. Okay, so... Uh, the man, modern man fulfills his urge to self-expansion by falling in love and making that love the reason he exists. Now, we can turn, their, turn this into your children as well. And so many women do that. Mothers will end up falling more in love and making their life about the baby and the children than with the husband. That's a normal thing. That's a bad normal thing. It's normal in the sense of it happens a lot, but it's not, it's not a good marriage. But that can happen. So you can actually, or you can find it in many love objects. I think for many boys in Singapore, the love object is their mother. Their mother's happiness, you know how weird it was for one, I don't know, oh, you guys weren't there, but maybe you remember at one of the circle things at the end of an event, uh, I think it was like the toxic parent event. Um, the guy was like, I had this, he went through, through the 3D trauma thing that I lead guys through in Rock Solid, and he's like, 
I discovered that my dad is proud of me. He does love me. He does. And he was like, so yeah about it. He's like a 25 year old guy, 24 year old guy. It's like, yes, my dad loves me. And he's proud of me. I'm like, that's great that you discovered that. Yeah. And what are you going to do as a result? Well, I'm going to go back and I'm going to, when I look at him, I'm, you know, he lives with his dad and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make him proud. I know I am. I, he's proud of me. I'm going to make him even more proud. Yeah. And I'm like, has it ever occurred to you why care about whether your dad's proud of you? He's like, <laughs> why care about whether my, you mean, why would I want to make my dad proud? Yeah. <laughs> Never occurred to him. So, uh, love object. What gives his life meaning if daddy's proud? <laughs> cool. So, uh, so as I was saying, uh, that the romantic figure or, or love, um, it could be your child, your mother, your father. Um, it could be uh, your husband or wife, obviously, uh, your girlfriend, the crush that you have. You notice how like, when you were a naive boy who didn't understand game and all that, your whole life could be an obsession about this crush, right? Like, or, or the girlfriend that you've just newly started dating. So you sort of pay attention to math class. You're thinking more about what you're going to do, you're planning out the date, you're planning, you know, you guys get, in pickup guys get obsessed about the clubbing, about, they're like thinking about it all the time. You're sort of half paying attention the rest of your life, but it's really just like you're driven by, this is like an obsession. And um, when you fall in love, that's what it actually is. Falling in love as that, that early phase over, takes over all of the other parts of your life. It colors everything else. This is why Jonathan Haidt, the, you know, in the Happiness Hypothesis, I've, I've uh, referred to that many times, that cited that particular passage, that it is an Im a biological impossibility to stay in love because that state will make it so that you can't get anything else done. Right? You, like, you just can't focus on anything else. You're just in love, in love, and you're thinking about when are you going to meet up and things like that. So that is a natural urge. We as adult men, or those who have, sometimes you have no game and they grow up as adults and they just numb that part of themselves because it's not a reality. That's not attainable, falling in love. But there was that, always that urge to fall in. So that, they'll talk about crushes. They're crushed, not their girlfriend, right? Or the, but, um, oh wait, I remember why we turned off the AC because it was too cold in here. Okay. So, okay. But the, the average nice guy is super needy around women. Uh, and part of the reason why is because his, Unconsciously, the meaning of his life is to get her or somebody like her. Somebody who will make his life have meaning. It's not his work. It's not his whatever, you know, whatever else is going on. He might like work. He might be very proud of it or whatever. But that's not giving him the meaning. It's this love, this love obsession. When he, once he gets it, you'll notice that it starts to drop away as an object of meaning. <laughs> But while he's still pining for it, that can, he makes it the love object uh, and transfers the meaning of his life to it. The continuation of the, of the purpose of your life project, the cause of sui, your immortality vehicle, um, is, this is, oh, this is a continuation of, simply is a continuation of the, the process of denying the fact that you are just a mortal creature that will die at any moment. Sex is the biggest, scariest part of that romantic solution. It is, so you might think, hey, that sounds great. And many, and you know what? Tony Robbins actually takes the solution. I'm just, I keep referencing him because many of us were there last weekend. But love is what 
will make everything nice and great. Like, so the lover has to be in the equation in every purpose of life. Otherwise, that drivenness becomes empty. Okay, so this love needs to be at the top of the hierarchy. But it's easy to say, oh, I'm not driven by significance. Yeah, I'll just switch my hierarchy now and love's at the top. That's bullshit. You're still driven by significance. Just because you change fucking words on a piece of paper doesn't mean shit, right? But, he says, but then a solution is to make love the, the primary driver. And when there is a love object, that's really easy. Because then your significance derives from the love object. And that would work in theory if you let love drive your life. That's a, that could be a very beautiful lived-in life, like the life that, as you experience it. Only insofar as a love object continues to support and sustain you. It has to return the love. What happens when it dumps your ass? What happens when it cheats on you? What happens when it tries to kill you? I don't know. And what happens when the baby grows up and you don't see it anymore? And now what happens? The codependent mother doesn't let the baby grow up. All right. And then, of course, the codependent boyfriend crushes the relationship. Even if it started out well-meaning, no one can survive those expectations. So every teenage love is doomed. That's why I love it. Like, I see they, they ask me for help to get the girl. And I'm like, it doesn't matter if you get her. You're going to fuck it up anyway. So I backed, I don't give a fuck about 18-year-olds asking for help. Like, it's over no matter what. We help them. This is just going to speed up. It might speed up their learning, but there's no way this is going to work. The only way it would work is if we re re rewind history 80 years and life expectancy is 40, and they have to ship him off to World War II, and so he dies at 25, and he had a nice two or three year dating relationships, and he dies, great. All right, so I'll help him live a nice two or three years, and then he dies, and then he'll, live, he'll, you know, he'll die with a nice relationship in mind. But that's not gonna happen now, especially now with, not with Snapchat, especially not with Tinder and shit like that. You know, so just today, a guy in Man Up was like, there's this girl, I stole her from her ex-boyfriend while they were dating, and then she dumped him, and now she's with me, but it's long distance, and I'm scared she's cheating, so I, I asked her for her social media messaging, so I've been checking, making sure everything's good, and all this, and uh, somebody's phoning me. And um, so I'm like, it is over, there's no way. Nah. And then what, a girl in the group is like, how do you know she doesn't have a second social media account, or a third social media account, and, and, or a different platform, or whatever? It's like, there's just no way it's gonna work. So anyway. That's because he's looking for the meaning of his life in her. If you said that to him, he'd, maybe he'd nod, but probably he wouldn't, it wouldn't sink in. But even if it did work out, even while it's happening, it's good. Right? Love is the meaning of your life. Sex fucks it up. <laughs> Not because it's bad sex. Okay? Sex, by the very nature of it, fucks it up. Why? Nature conquers death by allowing us ephemeral organisms us temporary limited organisms to procreate. Okay, there are other organisms, like single-celled organisms that split, okay, and they, you know, so, but we, we, we continue by fucking and popping out little ones. Okay. Evolutionarily, this made it possible for, for ever more complex organisms to emerge in the place of simple self-dividing ones. Okay, that's, we started with the amoeba, the first amino acids broke off, eventually made us many millions of years later. Um, sex represents species consciousness and the defeat of his individual individuality or of his personality. Why? Every time you're having sex, you might enjoy it. It might be like numbing. You might, especially if you haven't had it in a while, in which case this thought would never arise at that point, I think. But <clears throat> the more you actually aren't like starving just for sexual pleasure, but you're actually 
having sex now for the first time, not just getting off. You're, up, you're, you're being reminded of the purpose of this thing. Why do we have the sexual act at all? To procreate, of course, right? Like, imagine an evolved species that has as much sexual pleasure by doing this. Oh, why not? Why haven't we evolved pleasure centers that are just as good just by doing this? Well, that would make us die. Imagine you decided not to have sex anymore, because it's kind of hard, you have to convince another person to, to do it with you, right? But every time you just kind of, well, I guess masturbation is the same thing, you just do it yourself. What would happen to that person, that mutant gene? They would die off, have no babies, they'd be dead. Those human beings who like that kind of stuff, they're not around. Our ancestors had to enjoy sex, because that was how they incurred, that's how our homo sapien race incurred procreation, though then necessarily we'd have to derive an extreme amount of pleasure from the procreative act, or our species would die out. Obviously, please, right? So, um, every time we have sex, the unconscious intelligence in you, and some of you are just like ants and animals and don't think about these things and you will die and you should, you know, I ever wonder why, ever wonder like, does a dog ever wonder what its meaning of life is? I wonder sometimes, like I do, in fact, wonder what it's like to be a dog. So many philosophers have done uh, what, it, what it's like to be a bat. Bats are very interesting because they have no eyes, like they don't see anything, they just echo sonar, right? So um, what is it like to perceive everything through your ears? That's an interesting thing. Um, what is it like to be a spider in a urinal? That's another interesting thing. <laughs> um, but uh, what, was your, what would be your whole life if, if you lived 10 years and you were very much in the now and you had powerful things that took care of you, fed you, petted you, you know, and sometimes they left and you were really freaking out <laughs> whenever they left. But whenever they came back, you're like, whoa, so happy, whoa, life is great. And then they left, oh, and then they came back, whoa, life is great. It's a very interesting life, right? And then its greatest pleasure is to play with a, a ball. Oh, a ball, oh, a ball. You know, some kids, they go crazy over balls. So, <laughs> that sounds bad, but it's a weird thing. Like, why would kids, why are they so, but these colored balls, they can do things, they can throw them, they play with them forever. All right, so what is it like to be a simple-minded creature? <laughs> I think that's most of the world, right? But they're having sex, they procreate without understanding, without having any understanding, and then they die. Well, those people, we, none of what we're talking about will ever penetrate their thick skulls, so let them lead their lives as an animal. I've said this many times that they, most people are like dogs, like animals. They think I'm joking, they think it's hyperbole, they think it's some exaggeration for a comedic effect. I actually mean it literally. They're just like animals, so there's no point in talking to them. Most of the world is below, like, below 80 IQ, just keep them alive, Make sure that they have a relatively pleasant existence, and then when they die, put them, put them aside like euthanasia, like we do dogs. We don't let dogs continue with all this disease to die. We kill them. We kill the dogs. When the, it looks like the balance of their life will be suffering, we end their lives. We think that's humane, and maybe it, maybe it is. We should end dumb people's lives that way, too, because the rest of it is suffering, and they don't understand it. This is a bizarre thing, I, you know. But that's the logical conclusion to this. If we treat dogs that way, okay, so, I don't know, are you? So, sex represents species consciousness. For intelligent homo sapiens, when they're having sex, they're being reminded that they are nothing in the grand scheme of things. You blow your load into her, she pops out a baby as a result, you die, you have fulfilled your purpose as a gene. According to Richard Dawkins and all of science, you're done. Okay, so then that you fulfilled your role, your purpose in life biologically, you're done. Every time we have sex, we're reminded we are simply these species that will die. 
Man doesn't want to be a mere fornicating animal though, or do you? Some of you act like you do, <clears throat> but I'm assuming that you're more intelligent than that. You want more meaning in your life than a mere fornicating animal. Because what do we do with mere fornicating animals? We take a good animal who's got lots of good genes for the purpose that we want to make them, use them for. We make them fuck as many females as possible, pop out as many babies as possible. When that guy's finished fucking you or he's getting old or something, we kill him and we get some new stud to come in and sire the, the children, right? So maybe we should treat, you like that if you just want to be a mere fornicating animal. But he wants to be special. He wants to stand out in the universe. He wants to have his life make, have cosmic significance. It means something in this universe. And it's a scary thing because have you ever seen those um, animations? <clears throat> I'm not sure what to call them, but you start off with the Earth. And then it expands. You see your solar, our solar system. And then it expands. You see the Milky Way and everything around that. And then you expand. You see the galaxies. And then you see, you like, it just keeps expanding, expanding, expanding out. And you see, like, our solar system, our sun goes, there's this little tiny dot next to all of these galaxies. And that's only one part of, and the latest ones expand out. And we have just blank space because we don't know what's out there. But we know that there is stuff out there because it exploded and just expanded for millions and millions or whatever, billions, trillions of years. That's amazing. And the first thought of dumb people is, are there aliens? <laughs> of course there are aliens. It's got to be. I mean, it's crazy. But, but then it goes, and you go back down into the earth, right? That's fun. And then you go, whoa. If you're an intelligent human being, you're like, first of all, like none of the worries of your life matter, right? Like really, in the cosmic significance of it. But nothing matters. Right? Like, in, just in, 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 not even in terms of time. We're not even extending time out yet. You can think about how, how much things have changed if it's now, because that's light years away, and the picture that we're getting is like, but even just in terms of, even if that is in fact the way it is right now, in the big scheme of things geographically, like physically, location, how irrelevant our, you know, snubbing your toe, stubbing your toe on the door matters, or you got heartbroken, but it has cosmic significance. Out of all of this, galaxies and stars and suns and solar systems, we want our life to matter. We do. And it doesn't. And if you're intelligent, you realize this, but it's too scary, so you repress it. Okay, and then you get on. What do you get on with? That's the question. I have to live. I'm not just going to kill myself. Okay, then what do I do? The romantic failure, the failure of the romantic solution. Romantic love is an ingenious, creative, causa-sui project, especially if it's like your child or something. That looks very noble, right? That's cool. Um, I want to live for my kid and, and all that. That's great. But if the love object, and I'm going to take it's easier to see this in relation to the girlfriend or the wife. If the love partner becomes God, the love partner is a human being and can as easily become devil to you. And we know this, all you guys who've dated emotional vampires, I wish... Sir was here earlier, we were talking about that over lunch. Uh, and the reason it, it, it happens is because of a dependency on the love object. You, the dependency isn't just codependency of like, oh, I need somebody in my life to replace my mother because my mother never loved me. That's basic. That we know, that's easy. What it actually is is much deeper. It's dependency for, on this person to give your life meaning, just as mom used to give your life meaning when you were a child or dad or whoever or, the, or them collectively. But how can a human being be a god like everything to another? No human relationship can bear this burden. Now, you might be mature enough to know, don't do that to your partner, okay? So you, you've probably been burned a bunch of times because the natural human inclination is to do that. 
So your first relationship is almost always doomed unless, there, unless you have very limited lifespan or there's a lot of adversity in your life so that forces you to team up for that short period of time, right? Or there's just no way, you're not allowed to divorce at all so you have to make do and our human brains will find a way to make do most of the time. But now in the modern society, this is not sustainable if you believe that she is the purpose of your life, okay? But all these youngsters are gonna do this because that's a natural human tendency. And then they'll get burned. They'll get their heart broken. They'll get calluses on their heart, metaphorically, and they will grow up and learn never to do this again. So then they go more, more cautious. They might go through a player stage because they got, they got burned repeatedly, so burned really bad. And so they just like, fuck it all, and they just fuck them all, right? We'll talk a little bit about that um, in the next slide. But, um, but at some point, they're gonna go in more tentatively and, and not get dependent. And then they'll, they'll have to find a different cause of Sui project. But you can remember back to when it was a possibility for you to fall in love. And that became the purpose of your life. Some people, this is a, a possible solution, right? This is the Romeo and Juliet solution. It also happens to codependent mothers with their children or fathers with their children. And that suffocates the kid. <clears throat> we may prefer to deflate ourselves. And so what happens is to maintain this object relationship, we have to make that thing godlike. Because that's what we're imbuing it with, the status of, right? In order for that to happen, we have to deflate ourselves to keep that relationship. So dudes in a codependent relationship uh, with a girl end up making compromises. <laughs> You've probably seen this. So he had like balls and then he didn't have balls. <laughs> so he starts to defer to her too much, pleases her, and she goes on a power trip and she can't handle that responsibility. And then it turns her off over time. But he still keeps going lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. Just to stay that, keep in that relationship. This is also how you create a cult. Okay, you start off thinking this is the purpose of your life, then abuse after abuse after abuse beats you down until you are in that addiction um, cycle. This is how some religions also, you can imagine, began. Even while we glimpse the impossibility and slavishness, slavishness of it, so you see this talk in Christianity a lot about deflating yourself, the humble, and even to the point of slavishness of sacrificing yourself to be eaten by lions in Rome, because you are a Christian and all of this, right? So I just watched this new Scorsese movie. Well, it was new on the airplane. I don't know when it actually came out. With um, Andrew Garfield and some other great actors. It was, it was, I, I only got halfway through it, but it was about the Jesuit missionaries going to Japan in the time when the Japanese were really anti-Christian in the 1700s. Just killing them all. All these Japanese and just burning them alive. And um, it was bizarre. I, I learned about it in the textbooks, but I never thought through the implications because I was so immature of what it would have taken to have hundreds of thousands of Japanese in the 1700s as basically villagers believe in this thing, Christ, from Italy, basically, right? A foreign god represented by a piece of wood, two pieces of wood, cross, and willing to die from the daimyo overlords, burned alive, skinned alive, tortured to death, Drowned alive, always drowned alive, drowned uh, over hours, periods of hours, um, for this God that they knew very little about. <clears throat> it's an amazing thing. And then, of course, the Jesuits themselves who sacrificed their lives for that. It's, it's an amazing thing to think about. We yearn to know that our creation has not been in vain. Shintoism doesn't, well, it wasn't called Shintoism back then, but the Shinto belief system didn't support that very well. Buddhism really sucked. Buddhism is about, real Buddhism is this. It is as rare for you to be reborn as a human being as it is for um, 
a turtle to surface through the hole of a yoke. Like the ox yoke, it's called yoke, right? <coughs> the ox thing around its neck, floating on the ocean, and a turtle going, vroom. You got a photo of me doing this, it's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> but the turtle goes, vroom, that's how rare. In other words, the point was, you better fucking do your best as a human being in this life now, because you're never going to be a human being for another thousand lifetimes. And meanwhile, people think, oh, reincarnation, that's cool. Maybe I'll come back as my dad, whatever. <laughs> I don't know, whatever, right? That ain't going to happen. You'll probably come back as an ant. You know, and if you were a really bad human being, you'd be a frog who gets squashed on as soon as you were born, right? Who knows? So, so people were Buddhists throughout Asian history were terrified of reincarnation, of rebirth. Because if you, and it gets even worse. There are higher life forms in Buddhism. I didn't plan for this to be a Buddhism course, but I used to teach Buddhism in the universities. There are higher life forms in the Buddhas, other than human beings, including gods. You could be reborn as a, well, we translate it as God, but it is a limited life form, a limited lifespan. But you are in heaven. Everything is, everything you're, is, at, is at your beck and call, you know, our paradise, right? So you float above the ground. You're, you float, and the, the depiction was you're floating on clouds in the skies. You have grapes fed to you. This is like, you know, whatever. You have maidens. I don't know where they come from, but you can fuck the maidens. You get everything you want. Oh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And then one day, un unknown day, suddenly your feet feel the ground. And in traditional Buddhist literature, that is the most horrible thing. That is more suffering than the sixth level of hell. Why? Because you're about to end that life. And it's only down from there. You experienced so much hedonistic pleasure, you didn't have time to meditate. You didn't have time to think about the meaning of life. You're just like, oh, pleasure, 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 pleasure. Oh, shit. Ugh, dead. God is dead. You cannot be reborn again as a god. That's not going to happen for another thousand lifetimes. So now you go, you go become an ant. Imagine going from God for a thousand years to being an ant. That sucks. And that's, the Buddhists understood this, the relativity of happiness. <laughs> that was the scariest thing. Because if you're in the bottom of hell, there's a, only up from there, so you're okay. You know, like, I gotta, I gotta get through this life. I gotta get through this life. I gotta, you know, maybe you'll kill yourself. That'd probably be a smart thing to do, actually. If you got a horrible life, you'll end it and, you know, press play again. <laughs> Continue, right? Next life, great. But if you're a god, if you're a god, you want to stay there. If you're an angel, you want to, oh, fuck. Anyway, isn't that interesting? We yearn to know that our life is not in vain. So much so that, you know, 17th century Japanese who knew very little about Christianity but were willing to die for this thing they hardly knew anything about as villagers because the alternative was thousands of lifetimes of pain. What is the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism? Life is suffering. First Noble Truth. Okay. How do you get out of that, by the way, in Buddhism? It's to, nirvana is snuffed out. That's the literal translation. To leave samsara, the cycle of rebirth. To be in the cycle at all, even if you're winning, sucks. Buddhists were very insightful there. So anyway, going back to your love relationship, less heady things than Buddhism. We turn to the love partner for experience of the heroic, for our perfect validation. Our lives have meaning because we are in love. And I sacrifice my, love, my life on the altar of love. That gives my life meaning. And we expect them to make us good. We are redeemed through the love. And I, I did a whole video on the martyrdom fantasy. This is a very common fantasy. Once you have a child, you will understand this, how awesome it is in, kind of fantasy, in a fantasy way to die for your child. And for many um, psychologically unhealthy men, they haven't even arrived at that level. They just want to get their child to the maid and not have to deal with it. 
But the healthy way is you love your child so much that you would give your life for the child. Does that wording sound familiar? Okay, so, you, so that you, you, you would want to shield the child from harm. And you maybe you, you take the bullets for your child and you, you save the child and you die in some shooting in a movie theater or something. And your life had meaning. You died with glory, as they say in the battlefield, right? Your life had meaning in that because of the love. You made good. You didn't die in some meaningless thing. You went to the 7-Eleven to get some cigarettes and you got shot, you know, on the way to, to do porn and jerk off because you have no life. That would suck. That life sucked. You got killed. Okay, so you can't, but then you can't put that meaning of your life into a love object because it's human. Humans are just as fallible as you are. Okay, so that's why it's actually helpful to believe in a god because then you can ascribe it to them and then die a happy death thinking there's more. And for all I know, there's more, in which case I am the dumbest of all men. Okay, so modern romance versus sex. The modern love relationship cannot bear this cosmic burden, so it reacts by despiritualizing de and depersonalizing the relationship. So the modern person gets in love, gets her heart broken, well, fuck this! Fuck this relationship shit. I'm just gonna fuck. So you get Playboy, right? So, well, Playboy is pretty tame now. Porn's overemphasis on the body as a purely sensual object is gonna be the next step. And so you see in highly developed societies, there's always an over-fetishization of purely sensual things. So in ancient Rome, because relatively speaking, they were very advanced, it was just like free-for-all um, orgies all over the place, right? So as far as we can tell, right? Well, actually, Rome was a lot, was a lot better, I think, than Athens. So Greece was, a, was the orgies. Rome was more like discipline and all that thing. We're not as barbaric as the Greek, but of course they were, but they just didn't want people to think that. And if, the thought is, if I can't have an ideal, that fulfills my life. So if I, you know, you first fall in love, you're the nice guy, and then you get your heart broken. Well, then at least I can have guilt-free sex, and you just go and just get into casual relationships. So you don't get involved emotionally. This is self-defeating, because now you're still trying to find meaning in your life by fucking around. So POAs might do this as a reaction to getting dumped. They go learn POA stuff. They start fucking around. What's that solution to one-itis? I hate that term. It is Go fuck 10 girls, right? GFT, whatever, I don't know what it is. It's an acronym. So that's what they say, just go and keep fucking around. Um, and uh, I, I didn't know this, but there's, that advice was in some comments for a Man Up group. And then one of the guys who asked the advice was in Invincible, so he posted in Invincible saying, the advice he got in the Man Up group was to go fuck more girls. And I'm like, that is horrible advice. I did not, you know, the Man Up group is way too big for, us, for me to, to censor or police that shit. So whatever, you're gonna get some mixed advice in there. But that's common advice, right? Go fuck more. It's self-defeating because it brings us back to the dreaded unconscious equation of sex and death. Because sex is your service to the species. It is the negation of your unique personality. You fuck and then you die. Done. We don't need you anymore. Just like you have babies and then you die, right? It's a puzzle to us. Why are they still around? <laughs> Same with you men. You fuck and you die. Every time you fuck, you fulfilled your role. But eventually, every time you fuck, you've made yourself less useful. So imagine uh, a chicken that pops out eggs, and I guess. Every time it gives us eggs, its expiry date approaches closer and closer. Um, and that's what you're doing. You're popping out, not eggs, but babies, I suppose, or sperm. And as you get older, from the moment you can begin to pop out sperm, and you, you, you get more vigorous, so I guess you get a, a bell curve effect. <laughs> And then it gets your quality of your sperm really decreases, and then you just can't pop out that much, and then your sperm count gets really low, and then 
And then eventually it's like, you need tons of Viagra to get it up, I suppose, like Hugh Hefner and, you know, whatever. And then you, you're, you're useless as far as your species goes. You're done already. You can die now as far as nature is concerned. It's been better to kill you off. We're all living longer artificially. So <clears throat> nature would have killed us earlier if we didn't have all of these protections around us. The sensualist tries to avoid marriage. Okay, and this is the sensualist option. The sensualist, a player, whatever you want to call it, the one who gives himself to the pleasure, tries to avoid marriage with all his might to defeat the species role by making sexuality a purely personal affair of conquest and virility. The, but, and then, so that's the sensualist. The romantic rises above marriage and sex by trying to spiritualize his relationship to women. So then there's the other option of being in the romantic and saying, I won't have marriage and sex, I'll just fall in love. Over and over and over. Okay, and this is his way of, again, cause, creating a Kazasui project to make his life have meaning. Okay, so you can see, I think it's pretty obvious how neither of these are actually going to fulfill that role in him. Yeah. Um.